What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. And speaking of a curious mind, we're going to talk all about that today. I'm really excited to bring this to you because how many of you want to accomplish things, but currently... You just haven't done them. Maybe it's start that business, write that book, learn that new language. Well, our guest this week basically says you have a limitless mind. And this isn't like self-helpy jargon. This is rooted in neuroscience. And shocker, a lot of it starts with your mindset. So before I give you the keys to the kingdom, how much are you willing to pay for those keys? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. You know that it's always free, but if you like our episodes, we can't tell you enough how much we appreciate your support. Head on over to patreon.com slash smart people podcast. That's patreon.com slash smart people podcast for literally less than you spend on toilet paper. Your contribution matters to us. You can support us so that we can do things like provide edited transcripts, release weekly, create courses for you. There's a lot we have on the docket. And for something as nominal as $2 a month, you can help us get there. And of course, it, we're not just doing it with our handout asking for freebies. Not only do you continue to get this content, but you can get things like ad-free episodes, free books, and perhaps most importantly, you can ask questions of these guests. So this week, when we're talking to a Stanford professor about accomplishing more through our limitless mind, you could have asked any question. 
Maybe your child is struggling in math. How can you help them break through? Maybe you can't seem to lose that weight. What's a belief you have about it? Who knows? I don't know, but you could have asked it and you didn't. And if you just head over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast, it's your chance to talk directly to our guests. So as I've alluded to this week on the show, we are speaking to Dr. Joe Bowler. She is a professor of mathematics education at Stanford University and the faculty director of U-Cubed, an education resource that has reached over 230 million students. Highly recommend checking that out. It's ucubed.org. Dr. Bowler is the author of the brand new incredible book, Limitless Mind, Learn, Lead, and Live Without Barriers. In this episode, you're going to hear us answer questions such as, are men really more suited for math and science than women? Are women really more suited for language, writing, and soft skills than men? What limiting beliefs hold us back from success? How to overcome those beliefs? and why our education system is kind of failing us. Oh, and by the way, the grading system we use, it's not helpful. All of these and more in this episode with Dr. Joe Bowler. I highly recommend stick all the way around to the end because the last five minutes are pure gold. If you wanna know what the most destructive limiting belief we have is and how to overcome it, stick around to the end of the interview. We are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Shoot us a note at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think, what you like, and what you want to see. So excited to bring you this episode. Dr. Joe Bowler, let's learn about how we all have a limitless mind. Enjoy. When did this idea of how our belief systems impact our lives, when did it become so apparent and important for you? For me, that's a great question. I think <clears throat> I first learned about this probably about 10 years ago. I know Carol Dweck's research on mindset has been around for maybe a decade before that, but I actually sat down and chatted with her at Stanford about nine years ago now. And I said to her, I, this work on mindset seems so important. And she'd been giving these interventions to students. And I said to her, what about if we get the ideas to teachers? That would really amplify them. And she really agreed that that was a great idea. Now I realize that the ideas have to go to everyone. So my wife is a kindergarten teacher. She has a master's degree in early childhood education. And cool. we actually had a conversation last night about how they say they want to use this curriculum, which is individualized, meaning the kids do a lot of learning on their own, but then the teacher is there to support them and can view how they're tracking and treat each one individually. Uh, it's, you know, the, a lot of the rave, you know, the rage these mm -hmm. days. The problem right. is that's really not how the curriculums are currently set. I mean, education is the slowest moving you know, yes. boat, if you will. It's a, it's yes. a yacht with a two-inch yeah. rudder. How mm -hmm. do you feel about that? How much progress are we actually making on teaching what modern brain science is showing us? I think, as you say, the progress is extremely slow. Um, I am optimistic. We started a website just a couple of years ago and already had over 35 million views and people are very excited about the ideas. 
So I'm optimistic and I personally know a lot of schools and teachers that are using these ideas, but I also know that they're in the minority and plenty of schools, probably 90% or more, are built on old ideas that really need to change. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on as we talk about your new book, Limitless Mind, is you talk about how anyone, anywhere, whether you're a parent or you're in an office or you know, you're a boss, a leader can use these tools. So although we need educators to understand it, really it's anybody who has any type of even platform or even a family of their own can use it. Absolutely. Yes. I want to start with this. Do you believe that almost anyone can end up being an Einstein? (laughs) That is an interesting question. I think that almost anybody has that potential. Now, um, what happens over people's lifetimes is very, very complicated. And Einstein himself talked about how he wasn't really born with anything special, but he did have a very interesting mindset where he really uh, lent into struggle and he really kept going on things. And he kept talking about how he was just endlessly curious and he would keep working and working and working to understand things. So it's very difficult to, for us to know, was he born with something different or did he develop such a productive mindset that amazing things happened? So the answer is we don't know. <laughs> I think at this point, we don't really know who is capable. One of the stories I share in the book I think is really interesting. Um, It's a young boy called Nicholas who grew up in Australia. And in first grade, his parents were told that he was learning disabled. He had a very low IQ. They said he was the worst child they'd seen in 20 years. Couldn't read, write, make connections. So his mother refused to believe all of this and worked with him really specifically. But Nicholas last year graduated from Oxford University with a doctorate in applied mathematics. So that's a pretty high level of achievement. And that comes from a boy who started uh, with everybody around him thinking that he could never achieve anything. So you don't need many cases like that, I think, for us to really start questioning a lot of the ideas that are very prevalent in education, that you know we somehow know when children are five or six or seven what they can do. We really don't. We don't know even when kids are 13 or 14 what they can do because everybody has endless potential to develop in different ways. If I were to say the statement, everyone can be anything they want, how does Mm -hmm. that relate to your research in this book? Well, the ideas I share in the book are that, first of all, if we know about the really important neuroscience that shows that people's brains are constantly growing and changing. And we know also from neuroscience that the best times for our brains are when we're struggling and when we're making mistakes. And we embrace the new knowledge about connected brains that are communicating and different pathways are active. When we know all these pieces of information and we start to interact differently with knowledge and with people, it really seems that anything can happen. And I talk in the book about these being keys. They're kind of key pieces of information that can unlock parts of people that had previously not been unlocked. So I 
think that we are at a really important time in history where we're just seeing that people have this incredible potential that probably most people are not realizing, but could be realizing. One of the things that struck me, and of course you mention it multiple times in the book, and it's on the front cover, a quote from Carol Dweck, yeah. is the similarities, right? She talks about fixed mindset, growth mindset. It got a lot mm -hmm. of coverage in her book, yeah. Mindset. Yeah. I think most of our audience is probably aware. How does your book or your research differ from that? I know that it that's the fundamental belief, but why mm -hmm. did you feel like, or how do you feel you needed to add to the conversation? Uh, thanks for asking that question. It's sure. a really important one. So I think uh, what I do in the book is I share the huge importance of mindset and changing our beliefs and understanding how our brains work. That's really important. And that's kind of the first half of the book. But then what I also talk about is how that is not enough. And you can change your beliefs, but and we can share different messages with kids and things won't change. And the reason they don't change is because people are approaching things in their lives and in their learning in a fixed way. So I'll get, I can give you an example of this. Um, if you're a maths teacher, for example, and I work with lots of maths teachers, you can share mindset messages with kids and you can say to them, you can learn anything and it's just all about trying hard. But then if you present the subject as a series of short, closed questions with right and wrong answers, kids see the content as very fixed and they can't see how they can grow and learn. So in the book, I talk about the ways we open up content and have people approach ideas, not only in learning, but in their lives as well, in a way that allows those mindset ideas to really take root. So one of the, um, one of the key things that I think is very important is to value the different ways people think and the different ways they see problems. So when I'm teaching students, I put up mathematical ideas and I ask them, how do you see this? Or what do you think is happening in this situation? And then I'll ask the students to share their different ideas. So as you do that more and more with students, they start to learn, oh, this content isn't fixed. There are lots of ideas I can have about it. And they also start to value each other more because they realize different people can come up with different interesting perspectives. And I think it's that valuing of difference. It really complements the ideas about growth. But that valuing of difference um, is very important for a mindset perspective to take root in people's lives. Okay, I love that. And and again, one of the things I do like about your book is the application piece. As a parent, I do get frustrated with this idea where it's, okay, once you know this, everything's solved. And mm -hmm. it just has always seemed, A, a little too simplistic, but also be a little bit nerve-wracking for me, because then I wonder if, if this idea is so important, but I only have one tool in my tool belt, then I still am probably going to screw him up, you know, for lack of a better phrase. Help me understand what you just mentioned, which is although we can get the mindset piece, it's every facet. It's the way questions are presented. It's the way we even engage rather than just the mindset. Help, help us understand that a little bit more. Yeah. So I think one of the important sort of unlocking pieces of information that I share in the book is the research around struggle. Turns out when you're struggling 
with any content. It's a fantastic time for your brain. They've even found that when you make mistakes, there's greater brain growth and activity in the brain than when you're getting work correct. And what I've found over the last few years is when we've shared this with people, they've taken it into their lives and started to interact differently with different people. And one of the key ways that adults changed is they stopped thinking they had to be an expert all the time. And they stopped thinking that in work conversations, in businesses, they had to always know answers. And instead, they took on a different kind of mindset of curiosity and discovery. And so this led people to say, they said things to me like, you know, I've always gone into business meetings afraid that I'm going to be found out that I didn't know something. But now they go into business meetings and they happily say, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll find out. And that has been kind of liberating for people. They've sort of been able to let go of perfectionism and have always been correct. So that's one key thing. And it's a really key thing for parents as well as for employers um, to share with kids, you know. I don't know the answer to that. Let's find out together to not try and pretend that you know everything. And when you're working with kids with their homework, perhaps, to be a thought partner with them rather than an expert that knows everything. One of the struggles is people value the perception of expertise, myself mm -hmm, included. Mm -hmm. Our whole podcast was initially based on this premise of let's talk to experts. Over right. the years, what I've learned is it's more the conversation and the mm -hmm. questioning and the discovery rather than the answer. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think that's where we are now in the 21st century, that your approach and your mindset is probably more important than stored knowledge banks, because, of course, we can access all that knowledge on the Internet. And one of the uh, stories I share in the book was something remarkable that happened in 2016 which was an unsolved problem in the history of mathematics was solved unexpectedly by two young computer scientists. And this kind of shocked the world of mathematics. People thought this was an audacious event. And these two young people didn't have all this knowledge of mathematics. And they talked about how they were helped by that lack of knowledge because they were able to think differently about a problem that had stumped people for thousands of years. And so I thought that was a really interesting event because sometimes knowing less can help you be more productive in a problem. And I do think that the way you approach problems is probably a lot more important than how much you know and have stored in your memory. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Have you thought about talking to someone but are unsure of where to start? BetterHelp makes it easy to connect with a licensed professional counselor, caring professionals specializing in the issues that you want to talk about. Join BetterHelp and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Schedule secure video and phone sessions or text your therapist worldwide and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. Listen, it's really easy to use. It's available on desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. And there are two pricing plans available. You can do an all-included plan, which is one weekly scheduled live session and unlimited messaging, or a messaging-only plan to which you can add scheduled video or phone sessions on a cost-per-session basis. It's a truly affordable option, and Smart People podcast listeners get 10% off your first month 
with the discount code SMART. If you've been wanting to talk, you can get started right now. Go to betterhelp.com SMART. Simply fill out the questionnaire and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, that's betterhelp.com SMART. And now back to the episode. How do we know when we should be consulting the expert and when we should just be utilizing this limitless mind mentality, right? This idea Mm -hmm. that I can figure it out if I just bring my multitude of experiences, because there's got to be a time for both expertise and experience versus creativity. I mean, I'm not trying to teach that expertise is not important. I'm a professor at Stanford, right. and of course, <laughs> I know that knowledge is really helpful. But I do think we need to shift the balance a little bit. I feel that our schools and a lot of places are really focused on pushing a lot of knowledge into kids' heads um, and having them be these memory banks of knowledge, which actually is stored elsewhere on computers and other places. And we're not putting enough time into helping people be creative, flexible thinkers. I really like the book um, that's called Elastic, that's written by a physicist. And he talks in there also about there's really different forms of knowledge. One form of knowledge is that algorithmic, rational knowledge, very important, highly valued in Western society. But there's another form of knowledge that's this creative, flexible, he calls elastic knowledge, And he calls that the Zeus of human thought, but points out as well that the algorithmic rational knowledge that we value so highly can actually be performed by a computer better than any human on the planet and faster. But the creative, flexible thinking, they're at ground zero at getting computers to do that. And we really need humans to be engaging with knowledge in those ways. So, you know, Having students be able to work algorithmically and rationally is important, but it's not the whole game. We really need this creative, flexible thinking. And at the moment, the the balance isn't correct, Mm. in my view. I want to go back. I know a lot of people know this already, but the basis of all of this is neuroplasticity, Mm -hmm. right? It's this Mm -hmm. recent, fairly recent understanding that our brain changes based on how we use it. Could you give us your Stanford description of neuroplasticity and also a little background on how we discovered it and Mm -hmm. the the impact that it it has had since its discovery? Yeah, it's really fascinating. Uh, Michael Mertzenich is credited as discovering neuroplasticity. And I tell this story in the book of how he discovered it by accident. They'd been mapping out the brains of monkeys And they'd mapped out the brains and what they looked like and then set that work aside and gone away for a few weeks. And then when they came back to the work, they found that the monkey's brains had completely changed. So at first they thought this was a mistake and they redid their work and but this kept happening until they started to realize that their brains were actually changing and they were changing a lot. So when they first published that work, they got a lot of pushback. People just didn't believe it. They'd believed for so long that people's brains were kind of fixed either at birth or by the time people were adults. So that was the beginning of the neuroplasticity work. Now, since then, we've had a lot of work that's shown um, that people's brains are capable of changing really at any time. And even um, adults, even 
adults who are in retirement homes, when they undergo like an eight-week program of really focused activity, what the researchers see is significant brain growth and change. So one of the famous studies was done in London. London black cab drivers have a very arduous task of remembering 20,000 roads and routes through London. And they have to know these in order to become a black cab driver. They have to take a test, which is just called the knowledge. The average amount of times it takes to pass the knowledge is 12 times. So very focused spatial work. And what the researchers found was when they went through this spatial training, their hippocampus in their brain significantly grew. I thought it was also interesting that they found that when people retire from being taxi drivers, the hippocampus shrinks back down again, not from age, but from lack of using it. So that was really important evidence we have of the plastic nature of our brains. And um, Norman Doidge, one of the top neuroscientists, points out that every day we wake up, our brain is different from the brain we went to bed with, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book, and I was wondering if you were using that language metaphorically. I'm thinking, surely it can't be that different one day to the next. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, it, this is Norman Doidge's research, not mine, but sure. they um, certainly say very clearly that brains are constantly undergoing change. So one thing we know is that every time we learn something, there's one of three things that happen in the brain. One is when we first learn something, we start new brain pathways. And at first they're delicate, but the more deeply we learn something, the stronger they become. The second possibility is you form a connection between pathways you already had. And the third possibility is you strengthen a pathway you already had. So this is happening every time we learn anything or interact with something in the environment that causes our brains to strengthen and connect these pathways. So I'm sure that there isn't a day that goes by when people aren't having that strengthening and connecting in their brains. So it totally makes sense to me that every day you're going to see changes in people's brains. It does make sense. The more you think about it, it's something I've been really learning about for a few years now. And I mean, think about in the creation of humans, if we had to evolve to live in multiple different areas, geographic areas, environments, people, mm -hmm. it's essentially adaptation at the neurological level. But as you highlight, let's bring it forward to today instead of 100,000 years ago, we haven't quite put it into society enough. So you start off talking about how Let's think about the most basic biases we have. Could be females are better at softer skills and mm -hmm. males are better at things like math and science. Why did you choose that route? And what do you think is the most damaging result of that thought process or of those biases? Yes, those biases are really insidious and very strong in our culture. Um, one of the things that I quote in the book is the most commonly Googled word that comes after is my two-year-old son is gifted. And that is Googled two and a half times more than is my daughter gifted. So we know that people hold, when they hold these fixed ideas about people's ability, that they have a special gift or a, a special brain, we also hold those ideas about certain people in the population, certain groups in the population. 
So we start to understand why you don't see as many women in STEM subjects because those biases are very strong. One of the studies I cite was a study, I love this study, that uh, um, asked the question, how uh, much does it matter when university professors believe you need a gift to be successful in their field? And what they found was that it really mattered a lot and that the more any academic field valued giftedness, the fewer women and the fewer people of color were in that field. And they got such strong results on that. It was published in Science, which is, you know, really top journal, um, that showed that maths, not surprisingly, has more uh, strong ideas that you need a gift. More mathematicians believe that than other STEM subjects. And when people believe that, um, they transfer those messages to the students and the students end up dropping out because of those messages. Is there any difference in sexes, male versus female, and their ability to excel in various subjects? I fully understand how culturally ingrained that idea mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes I wonder, well, what about from an evolutionary perspective? You know, this idea that men go out and hunt and women mm -hmm. gather and forage. Is, and I don't know the answer. Have we come to any agreement or common belief that explains similarities or differences in men versus women and their strength? Well, I think it's very clear that things like higher numbers of men in STEM subjects uh, or women in other fields is not a genetic um it doesn't come from genetic reasons. Uh, we only need to look at other cultures where you see that in other cultures and other countries, it's women who are in STEM fields and who are uh, more successful in those fields. So I think it's pretty clear that these are cultural biases and come from the ideas in the culture, not from any genetic reasons between men and women. Having said that, I think there is some credible evidence that shows that men and women's brains have a little bit of a difference in their functioning, that men tend to have that more focused um, look, the more sort of strength in the single focus areas. Women are more connected um, and have communi more communication between different areas of the brain. That has been shown in some initial brain studies. I don't think that um, any of these differences, though, that people have seen in the brain studies explain the huge differences in the fields that people go into. Sure. And and that's what I got from your book. And I just wanted to hear it. I wanted to get it out there. You know, the, mm -hmm. really, your whole idea, the reason the book's called Limitless Mind is because if we can change, primarily change the way we think and realize when we run up against barriers, that's not a signal of we're not meant to do it. It's just a right. signal that we haven't learned it yet or or yes. we haven't learned it properly. Yes. And really the, the most important message, and this is quite liberating for learners when we share this message, is if you run up against things that you're struggling in, you should celebrate that time and be really happy about it because when you feel, oh my gosh, this is really difficult, that feeling is actually your brain having a fantastic workout and growing and developing. In our country, in this country, we have learned that, and many teachers believe, that we, students should be successful all the time. And if a student struggles with something, 
teachers and parents too will often dive in and help to remove that struggle. But actually, we want students to be in that place of struggle. It's a very important place to be. And so that message is one we've, I'm very keen that people um, get that idea and really change the way they relate to times of struggle. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Bombas. We all love to refresh our snack drawers, but when's the last time you refreshed your sock drawer? If you can't remember, it's probably time for an upgrade. Bombas socks are made with comfort innovations like arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed. All socks speak for super comfortable. They come in hundreds of colors and styles, making them perfect for men, women, and kids. I'm wearing my Bombas socks right now. They're honestly the most comfortable pair of socks that I own, and the no-show sock is perfect for wearing them with my sneakers. Bombas has a new line of merino wool socks that are made from soft, warm, and naturally moisture-wicking merino wool designed with all of Bombas's classic comfort features. From keeping cool and dry on your morning run to staying comfortable in your office's freezing air conditioning, Bombas's socks are ready to work as hard as you do. And for every pair of socks you buy, Bombas will donate a pair to someone in need. Bombas are what feet daydream about. So listen up, buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash smart and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash smart for 20% off. Bombas.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Up till seventh grade, I lived in Maryland and I always felt intelligent and I don't know where that came from. And I moved to Virginia where for no other reason than location, I was two years ahead of my classmates in math. So Mm. in eighth grade, I was in geometry where in eighth grade here, whatever's two years behind geometry. I don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I ended up having to get bused to the high school as an eighth grader. Uh Uh And I would, the only three other people I was bused with were all seen as quote unquote geniuses. They were going through Mm -hmm. this really high level school. Now in my head, I had no belief that I was a genius. I actually felt like a fish out of water because I had just come from a place where this was really normal. Yeah. And then I noticed how that kind of shaped my belief about my knowledge over the years, because As a junior, I maxed out at what our high school taught in terms of mathematics. Mm -hmm. And I started to think like, wow, I'm really good at this stuff. So, Mm -hmm. and here's where the story goes. When I go to college, I take on this major. It's called quantitative finance. Uh, It only graduated 20 people a year. It was like the most difficult mathematical major. Here's the story. Here's the end of it. Maybe two weeks into my first class, I realized, oh my God, like I have no idea what I'm doing. I am not Mm -hmm. gifted. I've been exposed. Mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't that good at math, but Mm -hmm. everyone else seemed to. And so I changed majors. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. there's two things I'm wondering. One is that's kind of the stereotypical story I think you're talking about. Just because it was tough and I kind of questioned my ego doesn't mean that I didn't belong. But on the Mm -hmm. flip side, I also think I'm a little lazy and I really just didn't want to put in the hard work. (laughs) Uh So how do you balance this idea of the stories we tell ourselves are going to limit us versus 
the amount of effort we want to put in are also going yeah. to limit us. Well, I think the effort piece is really important um, and definitely don't want to downplay that. But what we can change is those stories we tell us ourselves. And I'm particularly uh, saddened to hear people who drop out of things that they love, that they were prepared to put effort in because they either thought they weren't good enough or somebody told them they weren't good enough or that they didn't belong in the subject. So my book's really trying to get rid of those ideas in education. One of the people I quote in the book was um, a woman who's actually a mathematics professor now. But she talked about how when she was in graduate school, she was doing really well in the class. She was thrilled. She was getting 98% in the exams. And then the teacher of the course asked to see her after class and sat down with her and told her she didn't belong in mathematics. He suggested that maybe she'd memorized her way or somehow cheated her way to these high scores. And of course, that was really devastating for her. Fortunately, she came through, she continued on, she was very successful. She's now changing other people's ideas in mathematics. But this was a few years ago. And you have to think that when people are giving those messages to students, it's no coincidence that she's a woman, and that is still going on now. That's that's really devastating, I think. And we have to change those ideas. The story you told of yourself, um, you were probably particularly vulnerable to dropping out because you'd got the idea you were somehow above other people. It is that kind of thinking that you have a gift or there's something special about you that makes people really vulnerable when they struggle. And it's one of the real... It's one of the reasons we don't want to give that message to people. Yes. And that is what I found the biggest parallel between your work and Carol Dweck's. Actually, I texted my wife this morning as I was going through your book and I, I literally said, hey, here is the single biggest takeaway that we have to do with our boys. You can praise children, but praise what they did, not who they are as people. And right. I just felt that was the best summation of mm -hmm. all of that. And you give examples how to praise their actions and mm -hmm. not just their being. Yes. We know that once you praise kids in a fixed way, when you tell them, oh, you're so smart, which, of course, parents across the country are doing, we know that what children hear is, oh, good, I'm smart. But then later when they mess up on something, which they will, they think, oh, maybe I'm not so smart. Right. And they're constantly evaluating themselves against this fixed idea. So... It is absolutely fine to praise what they've done and say, oh, I love that you've done that. That's fantastic. You're learning that. But always to focus on that process of learning rather than on this fixed thing about them. I want to ask one more question around kind of parenting. And then I want to move into the individual, because I actually think the most important part of your work is how everyone, everyone listening can utilize this to make their lives better. I, I really want to get this individualized. Um, but the last thing is for those of us that are parents and say we notice our kids having obviously strengths and weaknesses. So say mm -hmm. uh, maybe they're going through school and they're just flying through writing, but they're mm -hmm. really struggling with math. What should we do? Because oftentimes today, I believe it's taught. I've heard a lot. You know what? Don't try to improve your weaknesses. Just mm -hmm. try to perfect your strengths. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you 
have a different approach? Yes, I think I'm really giving the opposite message to that. I was speaking actually with a business leader last night who said, you know, the approach of our business is to give people work where they're strong and to ignore things they're weak on. And he asked the same question, are you giving a different message to that? And I said, uh, then I am giving a different message because many people, you might appear to be weak in a subject. And of course, in school, that can be entirely due, due to a bad teaching approach. So you may appear to be weak in a subject, or you may be in a business and appear not to be strong in something when it's actually an area that you could really get a lot from and it could be really beneficial for you and you could bring a lot to it as well. It may be that it seems like a weakness because it's something you haven't been encouraged in or it's something you haven't developed in the past. So definitely, I don't think we should fall into that thinking of, oh, I'm a math person or I'm an English person because that's the type of thinking that shuts down other areas. And what we know now is if you start to think you're not good in a particular area, your brain will actually uh, stop functioning as well in that area. What struck me in your book is you said, if you have that belief, when you get into a situation where there's math or numbers, you actually light up the fear centers in your brain. That's right. And what I know about that is when your fear centers are lighting up, the part of your brain that's most creative, most um, problem solving, it really shuts off. That's right. Yeah. And they have shown this now in neuroscience. Vinod Meenan at Stanford has shown that people with maths anxiety, for example, when they see numbers, as you say, this fear center lights up. It's the same fear center that lights up when we see snakes and spiders. And then at the same time, the problem solving centers shut down. So that's why it's so important not to have anxiety inducing practices in schools. And unfortunately, there are a lot of those that go on. Well, on that note, this is what bothers me. Going back to my story, you know, it's not that I wanted to actively drop out of math. It's that I instantly knew, well, I'm going to be lower on the curve. I'm going to get worse grades. That's going to bring my Mm -hmm. GPA down, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. that I feel like our entire grading system is based on not effort or ability to get better. Uh, Grading is really one of those fixed practices in education. When we give grades to kids, they don't think, oh, this is a note about what I'm doing at the moment. They think it's a really final decision on not just their achievement, but actually who they are as people. You hear people saying, oh, I'm an A student, I'm a B student. And it's a US practice that actually I would like to change I think it's fine to give people a grade at the end of a course. It's meant to be a summative decision. But over the course of the learning, over the weeks, what we should be doing is giving what's known as diagnostic feedback. That's super helpful to learners. It tells them what what they're weak on, what they need to improve on, what they're doing well. And we know that when uh, schools change from giving these fixed things like grades to giving diagnostic feedback, achievement skyrockets for kids so um yeah there's a lot of things that need to change in the school system and unfortunately our schools are kind of based on this fixed ideas about learning we could also talk about putting kids into tracks we could talk about all sorts of things that happen in the school system that communicate to kids that they are at a particular level and they're staying there Oh, the thing about tracks drove me insane. Something like 
you know, tracks that are determined in, I don't know what you said, first grade or second grade is often the same one they're in their entire thing. And it just made me go again, selfishly, well, make sure that your boys are in the highest possible track because they'll rise to that challenge. Yes. That's so infuriating. And we see, it's very interesting, actually. We see that when schools don't have tracks and they teach kids together, the high achieving students actually do extremely well because they also um, they also are harmed by these fixed ideas. In fact, one of Carol Dweck's studies showed that when, as soon as students go into tracks, they be, develop more fixed mindsets. But the kids who developed the most fixed mindsets or the most development of them happened for students in the top track. So um, it seems like if you're a parent that you want students to be in a separate class with only high achieving students, but when you look at the evidence, that isn't the most beneficial environment for them. All right, quick sponsor break. This week's episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you're still using one of the big wireless providers in 2019, have you asked yourself what you've been paying for? Between expensive retail stores, inflated prices, and hidden fees, you're being taken advantage of because they know you'll pay. Enter Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile provides the same premium network coverage you're used to, but at a fraction of the cost because everything is online. Mint Mobile saves on retail locations and overhead, and then passes those savings directly to you. I've been using Mint Mobile for two months now, and honestly, I'm kicking myself for having paid what I paid for a wireless plan in the past. Mint Mobile makes it easy to cut your wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text. And with Mint Mobile, stop paying for unlimited data you'll never use. Choose between plans with 3, 8, or 12 gigabytes of 4G LTE data. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch your old wireless bill and start saving with Mint Mobile. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com smart. That's mintmobile.com smart. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com smart smart. And now back to the episode. I want to kind of bring it to the individual level here. What do you tell that professional? Because I hear from a lot of listeners, they're trying to change careers. They're trying to start their own business. They're trying to grow, expand. Your work directly talks to that. But I think because it tends to have the lean towards children, it's not as direct. So Talk to those people. How can we utilize this idea of limitless mind to accomplish those really tough things like building a business and, and, and making millions? Yeah, these ideas are very important for adults. So they're, they're really not just for children or just for learners. I mean, one thing that's so important is we know that what we believe about as our own potential changes how our brain works. And particularly in times of struggle, If you struggle with something and you have a growth mindset and perhaps you mess up or you fail, your brain will respond really positively with growth. But if you struggle with something and you have a fixed mindset, it doesn't grow. The brain doesn't react as well. So if you are an individual in a challenging job, as many people are, what I always think is if you go into those hard situations thinking, you know, I can do this, I know I can do it, but then you mess up or fail 
great brain activity happens. But if you go into those situations thinking, I don't think I can do this, I'm not capable, you know, something's going to go wrong, your brain will not react as positively. So this is really important for all of us. It happens, these events happen every day of our lives. And the way we approach struggle and really hard times um, is very important. I say in the book that if you live one day with this limitless perspective that I talk about, you will feel it, you'll know, particularly if things happen during that day that uh, where things go wrong. And having a limitless mind really changes you in those situations. So I can't underscore enough how important this is for adults living their lives. It's changed how I live my life as an adult. It's changed how I see people, the workers around me live their lives. This is, these are not just ideas for children in classrooms. Let me ask you, because you, you did mention earlier, you know, you are a professor at Stanford, PhD. All, you, you have all of the makings of an expert. And of course, you are in many things. Tell us about how you struggle with this. Because I, I mean, I can even think about myself and what I do. I do have to be seen as extremely competent at all times. People are paying a lot of money mm -hmm. and, and similarly mm -hmm. in your case. So for everyone out there in their professions, as they're trying to be seen as competent and confident, mm -hmm. how do we also keep this idea of being willing to say, oh, I don't know, I'm just learning while also being mm -hmm. constantly evaluated and viewed from those around us? I mean, I think knowledge is important and it's not that we can all just lose knowledge, not pay attention to it. But it really becomes a lot more important when you combine the knowledge you have with an open, curious mindset where you're willing to say, you know, I don't know about this, but I'd love to find out. Maybe we can learn together about it. Um, where you don't go into meetings kind of bluffing of pretending you know things that you don't. But uh, you take what you know and you combine that with curiosity and with this sort of openness and I see that, I see these differences in people I work with around me. For example, I can be sitting in a meeting with my colleagues and I can say, we really need to learn this new software. We need this new software for what we're going to do. And I know some people I work with who will say, I don't know how to do that. And I know some people I work with who will say, I don't know how to do that, but I'd love to find out. Give me that job. I'm going to learn that software. Mm. So those are two. I know people who fit into those different categories and they probably have the same kinds of knowledge. But in one case, they have this more flexible, curious mindset. In the other, they're a little bit fixed in the way they think about themselves. What is the most destructive, limiting belief that you think we have, given your research? I think the most destructive belief is just the idea that we're not good enough, that other people are better than us. And that idea, I mean, it, we know that it's just natural to have some beliefs of some self-doubt. But what it's really important to know is that when researchers have studied people's limits, they actually can't find any. And they find that when people really focus and put their mind to things, they can keep extending and growing and achieving, um, it seems, to any, to any place at all. So I think 
um, we do have a tendency to doubt ourselves. I teach students at Stanford and, you know, you could think these are the most high achieving students in the country, but I am always amazed how fragile they are in their thinking and how quick they are when they see somebody to do something amazing to think to themselves, I'm not good enough. I'm not as good as that person. And so I have to do a lot of work, even with these very high achieving people, to get rid of those really insidious self-doubt kinds of beliefs. Well, because you do all that work, what would you recommend as the first step to those of us that do have that? Because it is so common mm -hmm. in various mm -hmm. situations. Yeah. How do we, other than just this knowledge of, okay, I can just change my brain, um, yeah. how do we actually do that? Well, I would say read my new book <laughs> Yes. as the first step. I think, and to be uh, serious, when people are exposed to the evidence about brain growth and brain change and how brain connections come about, they start to change in their perspective. And it is the, that evidence that has changed a lot of learners in schools, it has changed adults, because once you see this knowledge about how our brains actually work and the benefits of being in a place of struggle, you do start to see yourself a little bit differently. And then it's a continual generative process of change that keeps on going. So the first stage really is getting that evidence about our brains. That's so important. Well, and like you said, if our brains are always changing, in my experience, it's small steps towards that. So if each day right. you just say, okay, today I'm going to try and find one area in which I might be limiting myself and just identify it. I, I yeah. think it becomes more habitual. And that's really, like you said, it's the belief system we're trying to build rather than the skills, I guess you could say. That's right. I was going to say that yeah. one of Carol Dweck talks now about how she's changed her own thinking around mindset because she used to think that people had a fixed or a growth mindset. But now she realizes that we all have times of fixed mindsets. And what's important is to identify what your own triggers are that sort of trigger you into that self-doubt thinking. She even recommends giving them a name, actually. There was, I talk in the book about this business leader who talked about his fixed mindset thinking and how he'd given it the name Dwayne. <laughs> um, he says, um, you know, when we're really under pressure in the business, my Dwayne comes out and I get super critical of people and really impatient. And as he said that, one of the young women in the business, uh, one of the employees said, Oh, yeah. So when your Dwayne comes out, my Iana comes rushing out and Iana's really stressed and self self uh, doubting. So I think, you know, that that's an interesting and helpful way of thinking about things. We need to understand ourselves better and think about what triggers, at, you know, put each of us into that fixed mindset thinking. Well, I know Carol's a colleague here. Is she going to write another book explaining that? Because I really like that. <laughs> I don't know, actually, the answer to that. Perhaps she is, yes. I'll have to reach out to her on that. Well, I, I do want to say that what you mentioned there, you know, a good first step is to read the book. And I have read almost the entire thing and in one sitting. I mean, it took hours because I'm a slow reader. But this idea of mindset and then how to actually change it with all the nuggets of wisdom, one thing that we didn't even get a chance to talk about 
is this idea of feedback. And I just want to tell the listeners, there's a line in there that can change your life, which was when you give feedback at the end, if you say, I'm giving you this feedback because I believe in you, mm-hmm. the likelihood of that feedback being taken and growth happening is exponentially greater. I, there's so many pieces of wisdom in here. The book is Limitless Mind. I have it right in front of me. Learn, lead, and live without barriers. Dr. Bowler, thank you so much for being on the show. I also know that you are, is it the founder of Ucubed? Yes. Uh-huh. So tell us a little bit about Ucubed and where you would like to direct us other than this brand new amazing book, Limitless Mind. So yes, Ucubed, and that's Y-O-U-C-U-B-E-D, is a website and a center at Stanford where we have just been sharing lots and lots of free resources to help with the teaching of maths. There's ideas on there that go beyond maths, but we centered it over the years. We've had it on maths teachers everywhere. And they have been super excited about the things we have on the website. Just in a couple of years, we've got over 35 million views of the site and we give away free lessons and videos for kids and all sorts of things, news stories. So yeah, I encourage you to come and look at that website, even if maths is not your area. There's lots of things on there that really help people live in this limitless way and get all these ideas about living differently. Well, Dr. Bowler, again, thank you so much for bringing these ideas and this message to the forefront, not only for us, but for our kids and the next generation and our willingness to take on harder challenges. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed being on the show. Thanks for listening, friends. That was Dr. Joel Bowler. Dr. Bowler's book, Limitless Mind, Learn, Lead, and Live Without Barriers is out now. I highly recommend you go pick it up. And if you do purchase the book, make sure to do so through our Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. But as I always mentioned, you don't have to buy anything. You can support us by heading over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned. We've got a lot of excellent interviews coming up. So we will see you all next episode.